Awesome God indeed. Hello, First Family. Good morning. It is a blessing to be with you today. Let's start with some good news, shall we? There was a little bit of mist in this morning. Now, you might say, well, I didn't see it there. I, 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 yeah, neither did I. I was already in the building. But we're going to praise the Lord in it anyway. It's more than we had. And you might say, but what, what should we pray for? Well, we should pray for rain. You know, we had, when I was pastor in East Texas, we had a long drought. And one of the things we did to remind ourselves to pray for it, we carried umbrellas. We carried umbrellas with us everywhere. Now, some people looked at us a little funny because there was no rain in the forecast. But let me tell you, my God does mighty things. And it's not just about the rain falling from heaven. It's about the rain spiritually that comes down as well. I encourage you, join me in that practice. Slip an umbrella in your bag, put it in your back pocket, put it in your truck, whatever you want to do, but put it with you as a reminder to ask God to send refreshing renewal to his earth, both spiritually and physically. I encourage you to take your Bible and turn to Romans 12. We're talking today about how the risen king of love reigns over our present. We talked last week how he reigns over our past. We're talking next week about how he reigns over our future. So this passage we're talking about today is a microcosm, you might say, a small window into what that looks like when we see it. And then we're going to take up a case study in Luke chapter 7, what this looks like when you see it played out. Because I want to tell you, friends, my God does all things, and he does them in people's lives. My belief is he wants to do it in some of yours today. Right here, now. And maybe you didn't come to have your life changed, but maybe Jesus brought you here for that purpose anyway. Because it could be that an encounter with Jesus would be just as life-changing for you as it was for the lady that we'll talk about in a minute. If you have your Bibles, stand with me as we read from the Word of the Lord. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. This is what the Bible says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray together. Greatest Jesus, we have heard your word this morning. And it is my prayer that it wouldn't just hit our eardrums, but that it would hit our hearts too. And that Jesus, you would do something in each of our lives here today. Not simply because we're in this building, not simply because it's Sunday, but because you long to interact with us. You long for us to interact with you. Do your work then, Lord Jesus, among us right here and right now. We love you. It's in Jesus and we pray. Amen. Now, if you want to flip over to the other passage that we're going to use to see what this looks like, then Luke chapter 7 is where you'll go. Now, why do we do it this way? Why are we asking you to find two passages? Well, for one thing, I like you hear the pages of the Bible turn, you know? It's a beautiful sound. It means that people actually brought printed Bibles. You know, printed Bibles are a beautiful thing. If you're using a digital one, no problem there. But a, a beautiful thing is the little notes that I write in my Bible to myself about what God spoke to me in this place. Another byproduct, though, is sometimes we draw a line between books of the Bible and we say, that's over there, that doesn't belong with this part over here. No, it does. 
What you just read in Romans 12 is what you're about to see in Luke 7. When you see a life transformed, when you see one who isn't conformed any longer, when you see somebody who's living that out, you'll see it in Luke chapter 7, and that's why I wanted you to go there. In Luke 7, we have a story about Jesus being invited to someone's home. He comes to Simon's home as an invited guest. But somebody uninvited shows up as well. Let me read it for you, starting in verse 36, Luke chapter 7. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them. The hair of her head, kiss his feet, anoint them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited her saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, and who is touching him, for she is a sinner. We have a microcosm here, a small window into something much bigger. We get a picture here of an encounter that Jesus has just because he was invited to this house. Now, why, why did Simon invite him to the house? Well, we don't really know. We're never told, so anything we might say about it is just speculation. But let's talk about that for a moment, because it's an important question. Was this a trap? Was Simon trying to be kind? Was he wanting to be a disciple of Jesus, too? We know there were some who were in Jewish leadership. Was Simon one of those? We just don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. But whatever we might surmise from it, we can say this. Jesus was interrupted at this dinner. Some of the greatest sections we find anywhere in the Gospels are when Jesus is interrupted. Think about it for me, if you will. Not too long before this passage, we find Jesus on his way to heal Jairus' daughter. On the way, he gets interrupted by a woman who has a problem she's had for 12 years. Jesus heals the woman and then goes on about his business. Another time, earlier in this same chapter, Jesus is on his way. He comes upon a funeral. The only son of a widow means she's in trouble. Jesus interrupted. He stopped the funeral and raised the guest of honor back to life. And I tell you today, my friends, don't ever feel like you're a burden to Jesus. You're not an interruption. You are why he came. Jesus is the invited guest, but there's also an uninvited stranger. This uninvited stranger, I can't help but wonder, and maybe this is just my ADD firing off, I can't help but wonder if she had to elbow her way through the crowd to get to Jesus. You reckon? The Bible doesn't say, so maybe I'm just throwing something in that isn't there, but I wondered about that. What was it like for her saying, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, and pushing her way through the crowd to get to the house itself? And then I want you to think with me just for a second about what, what kind of looks she got when she came to the door. 
Can you imagine the way every head turns and looks at you? You know, <clears throat> a few years ago, I was in Kenya with one of our mission partners there. Our Kenyan friends are generally not very tall. When I came through the door, it was as if the circus had come to town. You know what I'm saying to you? Every head in the room turned and looked at me. I've never felt more awkward in my life. I kind of wonder if that's the way she felt. But you know what? This unwelcome guest came with a precious mission, one that was born from the very essence of her heart. She came to worship Jesus. She did not come for their approval. She did not come for them to be impressed. She did not come for them. She came for Jesus. Let's talk about that for a second, friends. Coming for Jesus means you don't care what anybody else thinks. Coming for Jesus means that everybody else's expectations take a hike. Coming for Jesus means your attention and focus is on him. I've been doing this a long time, and you know there's a lot of different ways to come to church. You can come to church like this and not sing and simply be in the building. That's possible. And you can do that for a long time without ever engaging with Jesus. That's possible. But I want you to see that's not how this lady came to church. Well, no, wait a minute, Darren. She didn't go to church. She went to somebody's house. Where Jesus is, is church, friends. Where Jesus is, is a place to worship. And that's everywhere. So Jesus welcomes this woman. He doesn't stop her. That brings me to a couple things I want you to take home with you. One, inviting Jesus in releases me to worship. We don't find anything that she said. So let's just take a note. Words aren't always necessary. Oh, friends, don't allow yourself to think that Jesus needs to hear from you. Simply by your presence in his presence, you're telling him something. My prayer is that you will engage him that way. Here's another thing I want you to take home. Gratitude, boldness, and humility call me to worship. This woman who arrives at the house, who's kneeling at Jesus' feet, anointing him with her most valuable position, that alabaster jar, and wiping, her, uh, wiping his feet with her hair and washing them with her tears, we don't know exactly where this woman came from. There's lots of traditions, but we don't know. The Bible never tells us who this woman is. Some have suggested it's Mary Magdalene. Maybe that's right. Some of your Bible study Bibles may say that down in the notes, but Scripture never says who this is. What we do know is that she had a past. See it there again in verse 37. She was a sinner. This word hung around her shoulders and over her head. A reminder of where she had been. It reminds me of this jacket that I'm wearing. I want you to let this jacket for a moment represent the guilt and shame that Satan uses to pass over those who are God's children. I want you to imagine that it represents how he hates us, those of us who are God's children, and 
how he longs to keep us from seeing what Jesus came to bring us. And I want you to see when it says she was a sinner, imagine that Satan is taking it and throwing it over her head and saying, you can't go to Jesus. You've done too much. You've been too far. You can't go to Jesus. Shame on you. And the heavy coat of guilt stays on her. Can I tell you today, friends, Jesus came to take it off. He did not come. Believe that. Yes, she's a sinner. Let me tell you, friends, that's not where she stayed. Don't allow yourself to be tricked into thinking your past determines your future. It does not. At least it doesn't have to. There's another person in this story, though, and we do ourselves no favors by not noticing. It's Simon, the indignant host. At least that's what I've termed him. Indignant, meaning he's not so excited about what's happening in his home. See it there in verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who'd invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what sort of woman this is and who is touching for she is a sinner as if he is not. I want to tell you, friends, Calvin Miller was one of my professors at seminary way back in the day. He told a story about being invited to speak on one particular weekend in two locations. He was pastor in Omaha, but he was invited to speak in Asheville, North Carolina, not far from Tobacco Road. And he was invited to speak that same weekend in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, up in beer country. He flew from Asheville to Milwaukee, and when he got there, one of the men who picked him up said, Dr. Miller, I know we've just met, but can I ask you a question? Calvin said, sure. He said, do those Christians in North Carolina smoke? Calvin thought back and hadn't really considered it, and he, he said, well, yeah, I guess they do. I saw some that had cigarettes in their shirt pockets, and I smelled smoke on some of them. I, I didn't see any of them smoking, but I, yeah, I guess so. The man shook his head, clucked his tongue. He said, you know, those Christians who smoke, they really upset me. Sometimes I get so upset about it, I cry right into my beer. Now, this is not an indication of the rightness or wrongness of smoking or drinking beer. It's a statement about one not necessarily being equivalent to the other. He saw no irony at all in the fact that alcohol and tobacco are sister drugs. I call your attention to Simon thinking the same way. See it there at the end of verse 39. She is a sinner as if he is not. You might make yourself a note there about self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, it's the means by which I justify my own actions and my own thinking because I'm superior to whoever I want to draw a line against. We have a lot of that going around these days. And it's not just about what's in the Bible. Sometimes people want to feel better about themselves than somebody of the other political party or the other ideological group. And so they inflate themselves with self-righteousness to say, well, I may not have it all together, but I'm better than them. 
And that's exactly what Simon is doing here. I want you to see, though, he too is in the presence of Jesus. He's a witness to worship, but he is not participant. He's standing back. He's determining who's right and who's wrong. He's not doing it out loud. You'll see it in verse 39. He thought it to himself. He's not speaking this. We might say he's entitled to his opinion. But I want to warn you, and I want to give you something to take home here with you. Self-righteousness can cause me to miss Jesus altogether. He was in the presence of Jesus Christ himself. And what was he more consumed by? The fact that this woman was a sinner and Jesus didn't stop her. That makes Simon right and them both wrong. If ever you are torn between the idea of, is Jesus right or are you, side with Jesus, because he's the one that's right. How then can we leave self-righteousness behind? That's the second thing I want you to take home. Repentance begins within. Simon was so focused on her sin, he missed seeing his own. Let's not make the same mistake. Jesus longs for Simon to engage him the same way this woman is, and so he offers a story. Jesus' favorite way of teaching was with stories. Pick it up in verse 40. And Jesus answering him said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now I want you to notice what it said there. Jesus answered him. In other words, Jesus knew exactly what Simon's thinking. He ain't hiding nothing. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender, Jesus said, had two debtors. One owed him 500 dinner, the other 50. When they could pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said, you have judged rightly. And turning toward the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I have your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You'd did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he was forgiven little, loved little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Jesus tells a story. A story of two debtors. One that owed 50 denarii and one that owed 500. Let's give ourselves a little context here. A denarii is about one day's wages. So if you were to get a raise to two, then it's possible that you could pay his debt off, maybe not in two months like it would be if you were to do it one per day, but definitely over the course of time. 500, on the other hand, <clears throat> quite frankly, it's an insurmountable sum. It would be a lifetime of payment, and presuming it has interest attached to it, an unpayable one. There would be no way to settle this debt. In an amazing act of generosity and kindness, the creditor forgave both 
notes. He wiped their slates clean. No more debt. Such benevolence changed their lives. In that in moment of incredible generosity, Jesus asked Simon a question. Which one will love the creditor more? Neither of them deserved this act of mercy and grace. Neither of them could have hoped for a moment of such generosity. And yet both are better for the chance to accept it. Which one loves him more? Simon, he judges it rightly, the one who had the greater debt repaid. But what if, what if they refused to accept it? What if they said, no, that's okay, I'll take care of it myself. I don't need your help, don't want your help, don't cancel that debt. You might say, well, who would be that stupid? In 1830, President Andrew Jackson gave George Wilson a pardon for a, criminal, for a, a capital crime that he had committed. He wrote it down and sent it through the proper channels. But there was a problem. When the pardon arrived at Mr. Wilson's hands, he rejected the pardon. He said, no, I don't want to be pardoned. He knew his life was at stake, that he was to be hanged in just a matter of days. But he refused the pardon. No, he said, I don't want to be pardoned. Well, the authorities didn't know what to do now. Here, the president himself had issued a pardon, and this man, the beneficiary of it, didn't want it. What do we do now? So they went to the Supreme Court. Chief Justice John Marshall handed down this decision. A pardon is a slip of paper, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, it is no pardon at all. Mr. Wilson must be hanged. And indeed he was. I read this story some time ago, and when I started researching it, I did so with the hope that it had been recorded inaccurately. Sadly, this is a true story. I want you to see it not because it's a joyful one or because it's an easy story to tell, but because this is what can happen if we refuse the pardon that Jesus is offering us. We are pardoned not because God is love. He was loved before he forgave us. We are pardoned not because we deserve it, because we do not. We are pardoned because Jesus sought us out. He came looking for us. To be embraced then by God's pardon and his love means that I accept what he's given. I want you to see there are two debtors in this story. Jesus' story and the way that he tells it reflects on the fact that there are two borrowers with the same problem. Two borrowers. Despite the debt, they don't have any money. And into that, Two debtors, but only one worshiper. Simon, in his response, says something telling. I suppose, he says. Huh. He is looking in the mirror, and it's a bit foggy. He's trying to scrape it off, and that's why he hedges his bet. The Pharisee was so focused on his own purity 
that he couldn't see the death sin that he still owed. But that's what brings us down to the end. Our forgiving Savior covered our debt. This same cloak of sin and shame that Satan has thrown over us, Jesus came to jerk it off. He took it and threw it aside and he replaced it with a robe. A robe of righteousness. I'm going to send you home with just a couple of things. And I want you to see before I do, a freed and forgiven child God. See, <clears throat> there were two debts, but only one was settled that day. Simon had invited Jesus into his home, but he did not perform the basic hospitality responsibilities. No water for his feet, no welcoming kiss when he came, no oil for his head. The woman, who was an uninvited guest, a stranger, performed all of them and more. And that's what a freed and forgiven child of God does. Where does it say that? See it in verse 48. And I encourage you to underline this because it, if you've accepted Jesus in faith, is your word too. Your sins are forgiven. Especially underline that word sins. It has with it the idea of not only past, but present and future too. Now, this freed and forgiven child of God has a present they could never, never hope for. I want to end this with two parallels, and I want you to find yourself in one of them. Like Simon, you can be correct and still be wrong. You can be right and still be incorrect. Make sure that you don't make that mistake. Ceremonially speaking, Simon was right. But in being right, he missed the chance to encounter Jesus himself. Like the woman, Jesus longs for you and your redeemed present. You see, this moment that you've come to right here and right now, it suggests that this same Jesus, the one who liberated this woman and freed her from her sin, wants to do the same for you. He longs for you to find the freedom that he alone can give you. Maybe like the woman, you've got a past. Maybe like the woman, Satan has thrown a cloak of shame and, and guilt over you. Maybe like the woman, he's painted you into a corner and called you a sinner and you've believed him. But I want you today to see that Jesus came for a different purpose, to free you today. Maybe, just maybe, you come here and Jesus is drawing you just the same way that he did this woman. You see, that woman was uninvited. You're not. Matthew 11, Jesus said, come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and I'll take yours. Oh, friends, today, if you're here and you would say, I need to encounter Jesus the way this woman did, then here's what I want you to do. And you 
stand up with us to sing, and I want you to make your way down here to me. Me or one of my staff will be waiting for you. We've been praying for this moment all week. My prayer is that you'll respond. Maybe you've already done that, never been baptized. That's the first step of Christian obedience. Then I want you to do something. I want you to come down and say, I need to be baptized. We'll help you get that process started. Maybe you need a church home. Come down and tell me you want to be a part of the First Baptist family. We welcome you. Maybe you need to come to these steps and talk to the Lord about a burden that you've been carrying, either for your own family or somebody else's. Today, this moment, it's for you to do business with the Lord. Let's pray together. We know, Lord Jesus, that there's nothing we can do to trade with you, to buy our forgiveness, or to barter with you. But Lord Jesus, today, because of who you are, you've given us freedom. Freedom to come to you, to humbly ask for your movement in our lives, to ask to ask you to do what you did for this woman. Forgiveness, Jesus. I pray that Satan's methods would fall flat here, Jesus. I pray for those who need to have that, that blanket of shame and guilt pulled from them. And I pray, Jesus, today, right now, that you'd replace it with your love wrapped around our shoulders. Will you help us, Lord, to respond to you now? Do your work right here among us. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.